Hello and welcome to Every Horror Movie on Netflix, the podcast where we watch, review, and discuss every horror movie on Netflix. I'm Steven, and I'm here with my good friends and fellow horror enthusiasts, Patrick. Hey there. And Chris. Hello. And, um, you know, given what's been going on in the world, we're going to do things a little bit differently at the start of the show. Chris, would you like to say a few words? Yeah. Um, so obviously, you know, we've we've just been seeing kind of crisis after crisis in the past few weeks and months, and and now you know, uh, broad social movements, and and it, it doesn't feel right to just sit here on our ass and talk about horror movies without uh, addressing that in some way. So we were thinking, what can we do to help? And we've decided that for the first time in history for our podcast, we are going to host a charity auction. Uh, very exciting opportunity, hopefully, for uh, all you fans out there to get involved with the show a little bit more and to support what we think is a very good cause. So typically what would happen at the end of this episode, we would spin the wheel of death to pick our next movie randomly. Uh, but this time we're going to let you guys pick the movie. If you can win our auction, uh, the rules are, it has to be on Netflix, at least in your country. And it has to be a horror movie. So if you go to every horror movie on Netflix.com slash auction, you'll be taken to an auction site where we are hosting a charity auction to benefit the movement for black lives, which is a organization that funds a variety of other organizations that are committed to racial justice and uh, building policy and, and infrastructure around civil rights in the country. So you can go there, you can you can bid, you can see all the terms and conditions. We'll also be posting this on our social media so you can check it out there. Uh, so hopefully uh, we can all come together and, and do something uh, fun and, and helpful during this uh, time of crisis. Guys, honestly, I'm really excited about this because, uh, you know, we hear from listeners on a pretty regular basis uh, with folks suggesting movies that we should check out. Um, so I'm excited for uh, people to, you know, kind of have a chance to uh, pick a movie for us. But really, more importantly, I'm really excited to be supporting the movement that's going on right now. I know I speak for all of us when I say that we believe Black Lives Matter and we support this movement and we want to do uh, our very little part to uh help support it right now so with that said uh we're gonna continue on with our normal episode and we'll we'll talk about this again briefly at the end of the show all right it's time to get spooky guys Welcome back to the show, uh, friends and fans. Uh, we are here today to talk about not one, but two movies, actually. At the end of the last episode, uh, I had the opportunity to choose a film. It's been a while, and I chose The Car Road to Revenge, a sequel to the 1977 B-movie The Car, a favorite of mine, one that I know uh, Patrick had also seen previously, and I was just curious about it. didn't look very good, but I thought, how strange that there's a sequel in 2019 to a movie from 1977 that seems to have no resemblance to the original film. And then something interesting happened. After about a week, Netflix dropped the original car. So we decided to watch them and review them both for this episode. And what a journey it's been. Oh my God, yes. Cars, cars, cars. It's like a Beach Boys song in my head right now <laughs> after seeing these things. Or like the car's greatest hits. 
So uh, before we get into it, before we get into this journey, this this horror road trip, if you will, we often like to start the show just by talking about, you know, what we've been doing, how we've been doing, what other horror stuff we've been watching or reading or, or listening to or ingesting in any sort of way. Um, Chris, what have you been up to lately? You know, not a whole lot. The the most horror I've seen is what I see every night on my Twitter feed. Um, yeah, that's uh, real. Uh, apart from that, in terms of entertainment horror, um, you know, I I've been watching Joe Bob Briggs uh, every you know I, I, with my time off, I've been catching him a little more regularly. So seeing some nice some new stuff. Uh, I saw a Chopping Mall. I think that I, did we talk about that? I think feel like that was a long time ago. But that was uh, that was good. We we did have a conversation about that. Chopping Mall is just a an excellent little B movie. <laughs> I have so much fun with that every time I see it. I want to get one of those robots tattooed in my arm. I actually the other day was thinking that might be my first tattoo is a killbot from Chopping Mall. Um, I didn't rewatch it, but I did get a friend to watch Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. Oh, you're uh, a bad friend. <laughs> <laughs> that is so. an upsetting thing to do to a friend. Well, uh, well, what precipitated it is is Joe Bob's show played Cannibal Holocaust, uh huh, which I hadn't seen before, and don't probably care to see again um i didn't care was, to see it all the way through once actually <laughs> yeah um i mean there were there were some redeeming qualities in it but a lot of unredeeming qualities in it um and so this uh, person i got talking about kind of disturbing films and i said you know it's a disturbing film but like isn't too edgy or grotesque henry portrait of a serial killer i'm i'm thinking i'm letting that sit with me for a little Ooh, bit. Henry is pretty edgy, man. <laughs> it's pretty, but okay. It depends on your definition of edgy and grotesque because it is very naturalistic. Like it's not, it's not exploitation. It's, it's taking a very serious, um, it's a serious attempt to kind of peer inside the life of a deranged person. So with that right. said, I, I, yeah, I think that's I, pretty I accurate. I find it to be fetishistic. Right. I, I thought that there was an undercurrent of humanity to it. Uh huh. Um, which in which in my mind makes it sort of more truly edgy because it's just I don't know disturbing is the word more than edgy I guess but ooh yeah. man Henry is a that's a rough ride so yeah because because the real world isn't stressful enough I'm 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 watching horrible horrible things on TV to to relax I mean, there have been many arguments made by sociologists and psychologists over the past few years that uh, horror literature and cinema is can be a form of therapy. And I, I think there's something to be said for that. It's not for everybody, but I do find it a, a sense of catharsis in looking at something really ugly and awful that isn't happening actively in my life. Um, that it's It's kind of a fun release valve for me. So I get that. Yeah. Uh, Patrick and I actually both watched a movie uh, over the last 24 hours, uh, Scream Queen, Scream Comma Queen, the documentary oh. about Mark Patton from Nightmare on Elm Street 2. It just dropped on Shutter on Thursday. And um, wow, what a! have been waiting to see this since last summer when it was on the festival circuit. You know, I kind of knew some details about the production of this film and the aftermath, but not nearly enough. And this movie answered 
all of my questions. It was a, an emotional roller coaster. What did you think of it, Patrick? Dude, honestly, I cannot recommend this movie highly enough. I went into it uh, as, I mean, a huge fan of Nightmare on Elm Street franchise. I, I have a weird obsession with the franchise. I just, I, the original Nightmare on Elm Street is one of my favorite movies of all time. And by association, I love or hate to love most of the other movies in the franchise. And of course, the second one is fascinating, um, you know, well known for its gay subtext or maybe just text. Um, just text. Yeah, yeah. just text. Um, and I, so I was fascinated to to hear this story, even though I went into it with a degree of skepticism, because I think when I saw the trailer, I was like, okay, well, so this guy, Mark Patton, starred in the movie and, and feels like it ruined his career. You know, maybe this guy is, you know, just turned out to be unlucky in, in his career and is just looking for attention late in life. I went into it with that kind of skepticism. I was, uh, you know, my experience with it could not have been more different from that initial expectation. Um, it's an incredible movie. Mark Patton is an incredible guy. And um, I'm so glad that I spent 90 minutes to have uh, this added level of uh, perspective on the movie. And honestly, I can't wait to now rewatch the original movie itself, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, with the added context that I now have from Scream Queen. So, yeah, can't can't recommend it highly enough. Go sign up for Shudder and check it out. It's a really great documentary, and I'm, I'm kind of a, a documentary snob. I had very few issues with this one. Um, Nightmare 2 is one of my favorite horror movies. I mean, it, as much as a camp classic, uh, it, to me, as it is also just a really creative and interesting diversion in the franchise. Um, but it's 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 notorious at this point i mean this movie just oozes homosexual themes and and patrick mentioned the distinction between subtext and text and like it's really i would say it's impossible to watch this movie in 2020 even soon after it came out and not understand that that seems to be a running theme in it um and it plays very well for camp value and i've often watched this movie or showed it to friends like just to laugh about it and really hearing mark's story kind of recontextualize it for me in a powerful way i mean this is a man who was he he had just come off a Robert Altman play that was turned into a movie starring Cher and Karen Black alongside him. Like he was on the rise and then this movie came out and then the AIDS crisis happened and he had to quit acting and move to Mexico. Like his lover died of AIDS. Um, there's a lot of powerful stuff in this and uh, without spoiling anything, he gets to confront the writer of the film who I think is the ultimate culprit for uh how the film is is perceived what its intent seems to be or lack thereof well yeah when you talk about that subtext versus text question i mean that's sort of the question that's haunted him his entire life in in the sense that he's you know sort of been gaslit at many points into thinking that he was crazy for suggesting that the that the gay themes of the movie were the text you know the writer basically said that he was just reading that into it and that people only thought it was a gay movie because there was a gay man in this lead role. And it's really interesting to watch Mark Patton himself wrestle with that and end up confronting the, the person who wrote this thing and directed the, the movie um, over that very question. So yeah, amazing film. It's something that I've been interested in and I was actually very happy to see that it was on shutter. Um, you know, it's funny how much we talk about shutter considering we're a Netflix podcast. <laughs> um, but there's a lot of stuff on Shudder that 
I'm really interested in right now. Scream Queen is one of them. Uh, I saw a trailer for a Japanese found footage movie, which looked terrifying. Yeah. Shutter. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, w- I want to check that out. What movie? Uh, I, I don't know the name of it. I don't remember either. We uh, talked about it, though, because there was a trailer yeah. before an episode of Joe Bob, and we were both like, fuck this. I was like, yeah, <laughs> fuck that. Hell no. Too scary. It looked too scary. Um, and then also Blew My Mind, a mermaid horror movie. Ooh. That looks, that looks really interesting, too. So we could go on all day, I'm sure, about the selections on Shudder right now. Uh, hopefully I get some time to watch them all. I think it's safe to say, like, you know, we're we're stuck in this trajectory for the rest of our lives, uh, you know, or as long as Netflix exists, but we'd rather be on shutter folks. <laughs> well, to some extent. Yeah. The, the thing about the, the, the beauty and the horror of Netflix is that it's <laughs> so uncurated, you know? So that may, that puts the onus on us to curate it. And so that's what we're doing with our yeah, show. Honestly, I, I, I love being on Netflix. I would not want to change the model. I love the the weird and sometimes awful shit that Netflix throws our way. I don't I don't I don't want to just be going through a curated lineup of like the of great horror, you know. And I, and I do I have Shutter so that I can watch that stuff when I want to, but I love the the randomness of our journey. The Shutter is not all great horror. I mean, they have a deep love for uh trashy B and C cinema as well, um, but I but it, I, I do feel like we'd be more limited. We'd probably get bored after a while because we'd be watching yeah. stuff that's like bad but actually fun to watch because it's bad instead of, a lot of stuff that's been critically beat to death yeah. already. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, speaking of curation, let's get this back to the cars as I'm as we've been calling wait, 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 <laughs> these wait, two wait. films. We have a very important piece of news to share. On our now recurring segment that I, I'm thinking, I, I was trying to think of a name for it, and I feel like this is the most appropriate name for it, is Spawn News is Non-News. Oh, okay. Hey. That's a good first try. So, yeah, I mean, as longtime listeners <laughs> may... Good first try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks love for you. Thanks for Love you, too. <laughs> so, as longtime listeners may know, our very first episode ever uh, involved a review of uh, the movie Spawn. And uh, lately, there's been a new Spawn movie in the works, and one of the craziest motherfuckers, one of the craziest self-promoters in the entertainment business, Todd McFarlane, is working his ass off and just talking his little lips off doing whatever he can to <laughs> <His> little lips <laughs> to get this movie made so we decided to kind of start sharing uh, recurring dispatches on uh-huh. what's happening with this movie's development so here's the the newest one jason blum the main dude behind Blumhouse Productions. I don't know what his title is. Main dude sounds about right, though. Shared between last episode and this one. He said, there's been a seismic event on Spawn. A seismic event, you guys. That sounds important, right? Well, here It sounds I- important, but like, is he... <sighs> is he referring... Like, it's so confusing because this was... I mean, to us... This was big news. This also happened in the middle of a pandemic and shortly before all of the the protests that had been happening. I wondered initially if seismic event meant I, I didn't know if it was good news or bad news because we're not nobody's shooting movies right now except James Cameron because he's fucking crazy. Um we didn't I know wondered if it meant there had been a literal earthquake. The like a literal earthquake may have actually affected this film. We didn't know. But Jason Blum 
thankfully cleared it up for us in this helpful quote. There has been an enormous amount of activity on Spawn, Blum says. No new news that I'm going to reveal here, I'm sorry to tell you. But the title Spawn, I've been uttering that word a lot in the last two or three weeks and we'll have more news to come. But suffice it to say, it is a very active development. That's the news. I want to break this down a little bit because it doesn't seem like news, but words are important. You know, your choice of words when you speak uh, is uh, something one should be aware of. Uttering the term spawn sounds like he's it's it sounds like spawn is like anathema to someone, if not Hollywood in general. Uttering is not a word I would use to excitedly describe <laughs> the way that my film is moving forward in production. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah i mean and and this is why i think the title of the segment should be spawn news is non-news because that is the whole news the seismic event is there's just he says there's been a seismic event end of story he won't tell us what it is it's like they're threatening to take the license away if he like st- doesn't make progress on the movie but he doesn't have anything to show yes yeah it's kind of like when uh, I think that's what created the fucking Daredevil movie with Ben Affleck back in the day, like 20th Century Fox or somebody had to make that movie to maintain the license. And then it turned out to be that's shit. my favorite trope in Hollywood, just when they have to put out a shitty franchise tie in to keep the license. Mm-hmm. You know what, Chris? I. I totally buy that. That makes perfect sense. Except in this case, it doesn't make any sense because like Todd McFarlane, why, I mean, why would Todd McFarlane be threatening to walk with the license to spawn, you know, especially with Blumhouse behind it, you know, a very successful horror well, production. It could company. be competing bids and Blum. Jason Blum is just like, all right, I'm going to throw down this much money and I have the rights for this amount of time. So we have to fucking make this. Dude, I cannot believe there are competing bids for spawn right now. Like, McFarlane would not be out there talking his little lips off. Remember that impulse purchase I I said I made? (laughs) (laughs) Which we can't talk about. Um, Can't talk about it. But I mean, there's been some major interest. I mean, he's talked about how there are like, you know, Oscar winning folks involved in this movie and the, the, on the production side, Jamie Foxx and Jeremy Renner were both involved. Like it does seem like there is genuine interest in Hollywood to get this made. And I think Blum, I hope that this seismic event is that he finally, wised up and decided to fund the spawn movie that we all need right now yes i mean my ultimate my ultimate hope is that we can like talk to todd when this when if whatever this movie actually happens we can just be like todd we've been talking shit on you for however long like cut some promos on us tell you how tell tell us how you got this made and God bless, we can't wait to see the movie in theaters. We don't talk shit about Todd. Todd is like my comic book and uh, cinema Don Quixote. Like, I admire this man <laughs> beyond description. <laughs> How is he your... Oh, he's tilting at windmills is what you're saying? Well, yeah, but but you love him for it. Oh, yeah. Right? You find him to be a charismatic sort of, uh, not anti-hero, but just he's not, he's not equipped to deliver on his promises, but I support him all the way. <laughs> right. Well, and I mean, that's basically what he's built his career on. You know, I mean, you and you have to give him credit for it. You know, he's just been at it for years, like kind of going against the grain in many ways and, and talking to big game and is one of the most successful people in certainly the comics industry um, and, you know, in the entertainment industry in some ways as well. 
We will keep you, our dedicated fans and Spawn enthusiasts, posted on any news that we find that we feel is worth the share about the development of Todd McFarlane's sure-to-be-visionary Spawn movie. But we should probably get down to to brass tacks, and I mean the kind that you would throw into the middle of the road if a demon-possessed car was coming at you to flatten the tires, right? Right. All right, yeah. So so we're talking about the cars and not the Rick Ocasek, Benjamin Orr band from the 70s, 80s. That's old news. We're talking about, well, I guess we should probably start with the origin of this quote-unquote franchise. 1977's The Car. If you're a longtime fan of the show, you probably heard us talk about The Car once or twice before. Yeah, it's come up. We, we had an episode with our friend Bill that was kind of a, seeing the car at a drive-in in a car was a very formative experience for him. I saw it on Shudder. I don't know, a while ago, probably last summer, and then also watched it at a party with Patrick and Bill in attendance, um, the spoop spoop group. group. This is the kind of B-movie that I found I could watch alone and still have a fantastic time with. So the basic setup is, and really the setup is the explanation of the entire movie. It's one of those sorts of things where it's just that simple. Uh, It's a small rural town. I don't know if it's in texas or or where maybe it's in california it's the desert it's in the desert this 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 black kind of hearse looking car rolls through town starts randomly killing people local sheriff and motorcycle enthusiast is trying to figure out what's going on gets the rest of the police force involved and it turns out nobody's driving the car the car drives itself and the car is uh it's evil incarnate it's evil incarnate it's hell-bent on destruction for no reason we never find out why eventually they trap it they blow it up and there's your movie Wow, a spoiler room, huh? <laughs> I mean, what do you think is going to happen to an evil car? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the reason and the reason we're watching the car this week and the reason why we are kind of fast forwarding through it is because, you know, like we said, Stephen It's cuz we already spent 45 minutes talking about Spawn. Yeah, and Stephen picked the car Road to Revenge and we weren't planning to do the car, but then the car just like the car in the movie, mysteriously appeared. Just came out. It just uh, showed up in my fucking garage out of nowhere. It showed up on Netflix. And we said, well, we can do the original car. And I had never seen it. And I had so many burning questions about the premise of the car road to revenge. Like, why would a car need revenge? Uh, Questions that I hoped would be answered if I watched the original 1977, the car. The, uh, the impetus for this movie is it's, it's jaws with a car uh, the producers have said as much. It's also a little bit of uh, Richard Matheson and, and Steven Spielberg's duel. You know, it's got that kind of energy. That was a popular TV movie around the time where it's just a, a human being being chased by an 18 wheeler that doesn't have anyone behind the wheel. Um, it seemed like it was just trying to cash in on, on those two particular Spielberg thrillers without understanding why those movies were so impactful to audiences. <laughs> I mean, I appreciate uh, the way the car opens because it just gets right down to business. Like right off the bat, you have two cyclists on the road. The car comes out of nowhere, fucking kills them. No explanation why this is happening and never is it explained any more than it is in those opening moments. And you know what? I appreciate that. I do too. It it wears its... It wears its heart on its sleeve right out the gate. Like, it signals immediately, this is a movie where 
you can just turn your brain off and enjoy the ride. And we all need that sometimes, especially during quarantine, I would say. I read an interview today, and I forget who the interview was with, but someone who was involved in the in the picture, and they said that the reason no one drives the car is because they wanted to make a movie with this premise, but they didn't want to glorify like hitting people with cars. And they figured if it wasn't actually a person behind the wheel, people would be less likely to like mimic what they saw in the movie. Wait, so is there a draft of this movie where Steve McQueen is behind the wheel? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> like that's wild to me that they had to go through that thought process. It seemed to me that like that was clear from the beginning. They were like, all right, well, Stephen King and Richard Matheson and other people are writing about trucks and cars that are autonomous just chasing people down let's do our own low budget version of that that's very wholesome content i have to say i kind of had the opposite i think response uh from patrick because we were talking about this movie a little bit yesterday and i did not find the car scenes to be that interesting but i did like all the work that they put into the like characters and stuff and just the weird subplots that are in this movie for no apparent reason. Um, I think Patrick, you said that you didn't like that stuff, but you liked the car stuff. Well, so, I mean, I wouldn't say I dislike it. They just feel those two elements seem very incongruous to me. So you have the ridiculous exploitation, y car driving around, killing people shit. And, and, you know, some of that is quite fun. There are a few great scenes along those lines. And then you also have long, long stretches, or at least what feels to me like long, long stretches of just character development stuff. And James Brolin, who we have, have not yet mentioned as the star of the movie, kind of like, you know, relating with his daughter and his girlfriend and all this stuff. And it's like, it's surprisingly, there's a surprising amount of work put into it on both the writers and actors parts to like build these characters and actually be doing something with these characters and James Brolin in particular is such a charismatic actor just in general that I felt very drawn in by his performance and his character but it all stands in such stark contrast to the stupid ass shit stupid ass you know often fun shit that's going on around it that when you hit those long stretches of just character stuff I get very checked out because it's not necessarily what I'm there for So I kind of see both sides of this. I think one of the reasons I love the car so much is that there seems to be, you know, unlike a, unlike a lesser exploitation movie, this movie, the people behind it, the director, the writer, writers, I don't know if there are multiple or not. um, They put a lot of attention on every element of the story. So I did love that there's, a decent amount of character stuff, even if it doesn't really explain why the characters are like, why they're so invested in this pursuit against the car, but it works. It's completely silly, but I do love that this movie has some breaks in it where we can sort of see the human side of things and just kind of revel in these charismatic actors performances. It's very, very silly. I don't need it, but also without it, it's a 19 minute. It's well shot. It's well acted. um, Especially in contrast to some of the car scenes where it's like, you know, people are you, I don't know if you see anyone get hit by a car in this movie. You just see like the wheel and then you see like the body laying in the street for most of the deaths. It's very suggestive Um, in that way, yeah. And yeah, you get... Well, but it... I mean, that's of the era, though, I think. I do agree with Chris that, like, this movie is remarkably 
restrained for what it is. It feels like it comes from a different era. It's out of step with time. It feels more like a classic, okay. like John Ford Western, than it does so like I a told 70s horror. I, I tried to sniff out a theme in this movie, uh, whether it was intentional or not. And this is what the movie said to me. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited is to hear about this. Vietnam. Um, no, but but uh, like, like Stephen just said, it's like a John Ford Western. The whole movie is very Western reminiscent. It takes place out West in the desert, in the canyons. You have the sheriff and, you know, you have some American Indian supporting characters and stuff. But you they're being menaced by this just matte black, loud beast of a vehicle and to me i thought like maybe this says something and this this movie we know was a direct response to jaws coming out which was like the first blockbuster right and i was like maybe this movie is about like the end of the western picture and they're just being menaced by this strange out of place uh industrial vehicle uh, and it's kind of just disrupting their whole rural town. There's a scene where like everyone's riding horses at the like uh, parade rehearsal, and and the the car just comes in and fucks it all up. And I'm like, maybe this is saying something about you know how Hollywood used to make its money with the westerns and these like simple morality tales in the desert, and now we're in a new era. We got blockbusters. We got you know a different type of filmmaking. Chris, that is so tasty. I love that read. <laughs> I don't know if it's what they were going for intentionally, but maybe subconsciously. It's a film that doesn't beg for that deep of a read, though. And I think that's one reason it's become kind of a cult cinema, like late night classic over the years. And that it it really is just so simple. It's primarily interested in the thrills. I mean, down to the point where, as we've said before, we don't know what the car is, where it came from, who's behind it. There doesn't really seem to be a lot of cultural analysis going on here it's just here's evil in this town and people have to find a way to stop it and as they try to they're constantly thwarted because the car seems to reveal as it's going on that it has uh powers that no man or automobile has ever seen before <laughs> it, it just doesn't respect the old ways like you know you have a sheriff and he's he's got his his six shooter out and he's just dinging the thing they're having a standoff in the desert sun and the bullets have no impact chris you're making me think right now that you know this i i think this movie really kind of reached our generation or started to when it came out via Scream Factory on Blu-ray in like 2011, 2012 or something like that. I'm kind of thinking maybe Criterion would have been the way to go. <laughs> maybe. I mean, it's, it's kind of especially obvious now. Like, obviously, this wasn't intended because they didn't have the foresight. But, you know, now, especially when the the summer blockbuster is such a... Uh, really a product of mass production in a way Uh to have this car a symbol of mass production just driving over this rural town and 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 driving over the 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 imagery of what hollywood used to be i don't know that's what it said to me I, i i love that read again i will i will state that this movie doesn't uh quite I won't say it doesn't deserve it. I, I I do think it does benefit from it, but I don't think that was intentional. Um, but I do, since we're speaking of Westerns, and because we're in quarantine and I have my laptop in front of me, uh, the director of this movie actually was 
quite famous for a couple of uh, pretty big westerns in the 60s, kind of revisionist westerns. He directed Cat Ballou and A Man Called Horse, which are both really excellent films. And that that lends your read a little bit more credence. Um, there we go. You might have you might have cracked it, Chris. I cracked it. I'll be available for interviews on other podcasts uh, after this episode comes out. Not a horror guy, but he did direct several episodes of The Twilight Zone, and the last thing he worked on was Tales from the Crypt. Hmm. Well, do we have to say much more about it, or should we just review this thing and move on to the car road to Revenge? Well, okay, I think we should talk about some key scenes and then review it, and I think at this point, we're not going to take our usual spoiler break, because this is a this is a different kind of episode, folks. Yeah. But there are a few scenes in this movie that, like, all right, if you if this sounds intriguing to you, stop listening. But there's some wild fucking stunts in this movie. Uh, the, the most famous is when <laughs> the car literally drives through a house. Dude, amazing. I texted, I don't know, one of you or both of you or something last night. And I was like, I would watch this scene, this like two minute scene for 90 minutes straight on loop rather than watch the entire movie. I just love it so much. I've seen it twice now and it gave me even more entertainment value the second time around. The first time I saw it, like that was kind of the standout scene for me. And that that's going to be a theme when we talk about the the quote-unquote sequel in a little bit here i mean so like we should we should describe it because it's so amazing the way this is staged like james brolin's girlfriend is in her house she's on the phone she's talking to i don't know him or somebody on the phone about how like the car is coming to get her or something and it's one perfect shot you guys it's hashtag one perfect shot i agree her like big front picture window is in the background in like taking up basically two-thirds of the screen and you just see the car's headlights in the extreme distance coming closer and closer as she's talking oblivious on the phone and then the car just busts through the window and like basically flies through the house like it just it flies there's no ramp here there's no ramp i mean unless you can call the hedges a ramp like the car just takes flight and completely decimates the house just runs right through it in in midair it is amazing I don't know. I don't agree. That was a perfect shot because there was so much negative space in that oh picture my God. window that I knew exactly what was yeah. going to happen. Oh, you know what's going to happen? Of course, that's part okay. Of the enjoyment, like you, you see that window and it's like, oh, the car's going to be in the window, and then it just delivers like more than you even could have possibly imagined. You expect? Okay, I agree with Chris. When you see that, you know what's going to happen. I remember oh, yeah. my first experience was, you know, the car is going to get her. You expect the car to just kind of, like you've seen in a million, you know, low-budget movies, the car crashes into the house and kills her and pins her up against the the stove or whatever. You do not expect the car to fly through the entire house Mm -hmm. (laughs) and leave a hole on either side. Mm -hmm. It's so Looney Tunes and bonkers that it... I don't know. It's one of those memorable images I've ever seen in a B movie. The negative space is your expectation. And then the car just like shatters that expectation and fulfills it so much more than you could have even been expecting. So that's great. There's also a really like, I mean, it's hilarious, but again, this movie sets you up at the very beginning to, you know, I I feel like it sets the audience, the audience expectation, uh, 
to be that this is going to be just kind of a silly movie without logic or rules, but somehow the car... Wait, are you saying this isn't a silly movie without logic or rules? No. Um, this There's a scene in this movie where the car somehow sneaks into James Brolin's garage and hides in a corner <laughs> like a trapdoor spider in wait. And... I just, I was screaming. I don't know how else to describe it. At that point, I want to add to this too. At that point in the movie, and I know this wasn't the intention of the filmmakers, but I was rooting for the car because it was like, God damn, you're creative and you're resourceful, car. <laughs> no, but you know what? That reminds me of something I did like about this movie, which uh, uh, theoretically I should love this movie because this is what I'm always talking about. It's it's a ridiculous concept played so straight. It's deep space that, pizza face. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get to that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you know, it's a ridiculous concept played so straight that it just is. It, it's so funny, like. The this scene has so much gravitas. The guy's in his house. He's like writing a note, like about take care of my kids for me if I die. Yeah. And like you know, he's like he's getting his gun. He's getting on. He's getting ready to go out and prowl the streets looking for this damn car. And he goes into the garage, and the car is just sitting there. And it's like. I don't know. It's just played so straight and played for so much drama and terror, even though it's so fucking ridiculous. But it okay. Did it work for you though? Because I was like, I was laughing, but I was also like, I wonder how he's gonna get out of there. Like, is he gonna make it? You know, he's yeah. you know he's gonna make it. But like, it's directed in such a way that it is actually as as absurd as it is. It's unusually suspenseful. I really also like the uh, the just that first stunt where the guy hits uh, runs the bicyclist off the road and the guy falls off the bridge. Uh-huh. It's like that that's a stunt. That's you know that's no CGI. It's an actual guy. And I read it was like one of the longest like free fall stunts in movie history at the time this was made. That was I impressive. Don't I don't know what they did to make sure this guy didn't die at the end of the fall. Maybe he did die at the end of the fall. Um, <laughs> because he's just like flying through the air arms flailing it looks amazing and that's you know something i really miss about movies um you know movies from this era whether it's this or james bond or whatever they really commit hard to the actual stunts and outside of, like the mission impossible franchise today it's hard to see a good stunt on screen well i i love that that interpretation chris and like this movie I've seen it three times now, which makes me sound insane. Um, but it reminds me of like the exploitation cinema that was coming out of the seventies in Australia. Like the, the these movies were primarily like designed just to highlight the stunts, and you felt like everybody involved in the production was in danger all the time. And this movie has that in spades, that scene in particular. Like, I feel like I just, we just don't see films like that anymore. And I miss it on one hand, but I'm also glad that, like, there are laws in place to make sure that that kind of filmmaking doesn't happen anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also, like, this weird standoff sequence in a fucking, like, cemetery where James Brolin's girlfriend is, like, protecting her children who she teaches and like taunting the car and talking to it like it's a person which is one of the most absurd fucking things i've ever seen that that's a that's a fucking sequence yeah but that's your movie i mean so basically at the end they uh there's this whole elaborate sequence where james brolin like lures the lures the car into a quarry um he's got the police force and other other townsfolk that have survived to set up 
you know, dynamite all over and they blow the thing up. And then, you know, the real kicker, the real like Tales from the Crypt style clincher of this <laughs> is that when the car blows up and the flames erupt into the sky, there's a fucking demon face in the flames. <laughs> it's Malbolgia. <laughs> it could be Malbolgia. Malbolgia is Bay. Let's just remind ourselves of that. Malbolgia He's Bay. He's Bay. bay. But. Okay, this is going to be a great segue, I hope, into our next discussion. It doesn't end there. Then we see the car driving on the streets of Los Angeles. It's back in motion, baby. Sequel. However, you don't expect a sequel over 40 years <laughs> later. Well, hold on. Let's let's give some uh, let's give some ratings out for the car 1977. I'll uh, I'll let you know. I give it a cue. It um it was enjoyable. Are you gonna be missing anything in your life if you don't see it? Probably not. Cue it. Great. What about you, Stephen? Um, I also give it a cue. It. You know, I love I love 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 this movie. I think that's pretty. It's been pretty obvious throughout this episode. It's a it's a favorite of mine. It's uh, at this point, it's becoming kind of a comfort movie for me. But it's not going to be for everybody. But it just hits the sweet spot of exploitation and sincerity that i that i crave in b movies sounds like a view it from you actually no i'm not going to change my mind no? <laughs> like it, okay. it's I, i'm i'm thinking of the audience here like personally for well, me it's a view it because i'm going to view it again um i still have bill's yeah. blu-ray and you bet i'm going to throw that on in like three months because i'm not going to see him until after the quarantine's over but for for our, our listening audience it's definitely a cue it it's a lot of fun if you set your expectations properly I love just the weirdest scene where there's the old cop talking to the domestic violence victim and he like tries to like kind of flirt with her and she kind of just says, no, it's okay. I'm just going to go home. And he's like, I went to high school with her. And then like, he goes out in the street and immediately gets hit by the car. There's, yeah, I forgot about that scene. I mean, there's, there is a lot of like, there's some crazy dialogue in this movie. Again, I think it harkens back to the, the, um, kind of 60s revisionist westerns and spaghetti westerns like it's trying to sort of fit in with that where there there is some kind of snappy dialogue there's some interesting character dynamics and you know your mileage (laughs) i didn't even think about that as a joke but your mileage will vary patrick what did you think of it you've seen it twice now I've seen it twice. I mean, I, I'm I'm going to give it what I will describe as a grudging cue it because, I mean, there are moments in this movie that I enjoyed. Strong view it to that scene we've discussed about the uh, the car crashing through the window. Go find that on YouTube. But I don't know. I, I, I rewatched this only because we were watching the car road to revenge and I kind of wanted to have the, the context and any connective tissue, which is such a laughable comment now having actually seen the car road to revenge but uh yeah i don't know it's kind of draggy for me like i said earlier you know there is a weird amount of sincerity to the movie but the sincere character stuff just doesn't necessarily gel with the goofier like gonzo moments to me and uh yeah i don't know there's not a lot there and also just as a final comment that we didn't even like talk about but there's a really weird scene about like domestic abuse that is my God, that's a strange scene, the way that's all handled. We don't need to get into it, but man, that's a weird fucking scene. That's the kind of stuff, I mean, I guess this is what I'm talking about when I say that I would give this movie to myself, a view it, and to listeners, a cue it. I love that just 
misguided screenwriting that is delivered so passionately by the actors like that. Like when I'm looking for a bad movie, I want one an insane perspective from the writer and director and two total commitment from the actors. And this movie has all of that in spades. I thought we were going to be dealing with like a vigilante car. I thought we were going to be because it's like the second character we meet is like a domestic abuser. And then the car looks like it's going to kill him. And I'm like, is this a car that just has a moral code? <laughs> Maybe that'll be the card three. <laughs> it's not card two. I can tell you that. <laughs> All right. So we are back on the road to revenge. For the car two, as it is colloquially known, this movie came out in, I believe, 2019, last year. And of course, of course, I was skeptical. I mean, the poster art made it look like a Roger Corman production. Um, I, I assumed, and, you know, we can talk about whether or not I was right, in that it had very uh, loose ties to the original car. But I was, when it popped up on Netflix finally, and that poster was in front of my eyes again, I thought we got to review this guys. Like if nothing else, we have to review it just to talk about the original car. And I, I don't know how I feel about the decision. Now, all those questions I had about the car, when you picked this movie, I only have more questions after having seen the car road to. Oh, same. This, this is almost on death house. level. This is is Pandora's box. Like this just opens it up into a whole other realm of complete insanity. So with this movie, we're kind of set in like a low rent blade runner, neuromancer future. There's holographic strippers. I mean, we get like a, like the way that they set up sort of the setting of whatever this version of the future is um we get just like tiny glimpses of low budget gadgetry and uh technological advancements that didn't really sell me on on the setting or the concept and then sometimes they're just in like a normal street in a normal town and then sometimes they're in like low rent blade runner right i mean to give you i mean to give you the listener an idea of what this movie looks like if you're at if you're at all familiar, if you've seen a trailer for the Death Race reboot movies, it's a lot like that. And it's not only a lot like that because it looks like that. It's because the director of this, his most noteworthy film is Death Race 2050. Really? Wow. I did not realize that. Yes. And it is. So it's like a little bit RoboCop. It's a little bit Mad Max. It's a little it's v- a very little bit the car, but there's a lot of Blade Runner and Neuromancer, as- I will say, aspirations to be charitable in this film. So I love that creative choice because, you know, this is this is basically what I talk about with Deep Space Pizza Face, which is Pizza Face Killer 2. Like, you know, every, every horror franchise just goes batshit into, like, futurism or, or science fiction at some point. Why not just do it in the second movie? And it's so bizarre that they would make a sequel to the car from 1977 in 2019, and it would have almost nothing to do with the original car except for there's a car in it, and it would be set amidst this like this this cyberpunk plot. So aesthetic. I mean, so I mean, let's set up the the bizarre sci-fi elements of this tie directly into one of our main characters, which is the the evil district attorney who has kind of 
built his rise to prominence apparently on creating a new kind of death penalty, which we see very, very early in the movie. A criminal is basically placed in a giant like test tube, I guess, and right after he's convicted and subjected to some sort of process that's never explained that just causes his entire body to explode in a big burst of blood. And this is like the thing that has brought this DA... Is that his title? I don't know. I think he's a DA. Yeah. This is like what has brought him to prominence is that I guess he invented this method. I don't know. It's so puzzling. He's so he's pushing for a new, more aggressive kind of criminal reform. So he's kind of he's like the Giuliani of the future. <laughs> <laughs> like like to call him an antihero would be. Again, I'm going to reuse a word, but that would be charitable. I don't really understand how we're supposed to feel about him because he does end up becoming he becomes the car he's the car he's convicted this criminal but he the da is in possession of this microchip that has encrypted data on it that he has stored in his car which is basically an analog for a tesla that's like it's a lazarus that's the name of the car it's this fancy new car but this gang of weirdo misfit halloween spirit characters are coming after him to get this data they kill him in a very Zack Snyder sequence he falls out of a window onto the car his blood drips into the car and he becomes the car that also has the chip in it he wants the car right which I have I have two things to say about this so this chip is the MacGuffin of the whole movie. This, yes. this data chip that the district attorney, it's come into his possession. And when I originally watched this movie, I was not paying the greatest attention. And I realized that this chip was the MacGuffin. And I was like, wait, where did this chip come from? What is it? Why is it important? I really checked out for something important here. So I went back and rewatched the scene in which this whole concept is introduced. And literally the significance of the chip is explained in a single line of extremely vague dialogue that really explains nothing at all. So not so not fuck me, fuck the filmmakers, fuck the filmmakers. But I will say because this movie seems to bear so little resemblance to the original film. Yes. But wait. And that was my second thing. That was my second thing. I, I will finish my second thing to say about this very briefly. My second thing is just that it's so bizarre because in the original one, there's no explanation for why the car is sentient. In this one, a guy's spirit is somehow transferred into this car. And it's just, it, it's very strange because at least for two thirds of the running time, it's like, okay, this has no resemblance to the original film other than that there is a car killing people without a driver inside it. That ends my two things to say about this. Sorry. I feel like this movie kind of hits the same, the the least it does is it kind of hits the same plot beats of the original film, but in wildly misguided ways <laughs> that end up, as Chris said, leaving more questions than answers. Wait, what do you mean by that? Like the plot beats? I mean, we get... I mean, other than just the car get, kills a string of people. Um, We get like a... A male female relationship that is that we're that we're supposed to be invested in as the car is killing people we get a wild absolutely wild car kill about two-thirds of the way into the movie that is seems to be almost timed to when the car goes through the house in the original film <laughs> and we're also left with a very vague sense of whatever the fuck happened by the time it's over 
I mean, I guess that's true. But I mean, the plot itself is so... I mean, it's weirdly much more plot plot E than the original. Like, there's this... It is, but the but the ends that it meets do about as much as the original film did. But it's it's a frustrating film because I didn't need that in the original film, and I don't need that in this film. Well, your first mistake is walking into this with any sort of thought in your head that relates to the original film. I understand why you do that, because the name of the movie is The Car, Road to Revenge. Oh, I gave... Chris, I gave up on that quickly. But I will say, like, without delivering spoilers yet because we are going to take a spoiler break for this movie our official feature for this episode um we we do get some unexpected connections to the original film i was just trying to piece together for the whole running time of this movie how this movie came together like this like it seems like they had a script for kind of a generic, like, sci-fi channel, cyberpunky action movie. Yeah. And then for some reason, someone decided to attach the car IP to it, and so they made some revisions, and now it's a car movie. <laughs> I've done a fair amount of research, and I cannot really understand how the car IP came into play with this movie um it it does seem i mean like looking at the long view it is obviously intentional that this is a a sequel a quote-unquote sequel kind of revision of the car but i couldn't find anything about how how it came to be on the you know the production side the money side of it like it doesn't seem like anybody involved with the original except for ronnie cox who shows up in a role later in the film like there, there are very very few connections like no one wanted to make a sequel otherwise. to the car no one here wanted to make a sequel to the car the, the, but i wanted to see one and this is not what i expected <laughs> right but i'm so i'm just trying to figure out how this happens like they're either just given the idea of a car for like, like some bookkeeper. It, it seems again, like the thing like, Oh shit, <laughs> the car is about to enter the public domain unless we make a car movie in 2019. And so they called up GJ actor camp act, act, actor camp. And they said, make our car movie. <laughs> yeah. And he said, actually I'm working on, you know, this direct to video, uh, blade runner riff. And they were like, put the fucking car in it no he was like i'm working on death race 2060 and (laughs) so you know but but all right but that said you know this this movie has a good uh tempo it's it's what you would expect from like a made for tv uh sci-fi action movie and it's fun um It, it looks i mean i will say this you know going in i'm just i've been so jaded over time by seeing I mean, I follow movie news pretty regularly and industry, you know, trade publications and like I see press releases and posters and like I saw the the press release and poster for this movie and I felt like, oh my God, this is going to look like it was shot on an iPhone. Like I will say this movie looks, I mean, for what it is, it looks pretty good. The problem is the lack of imagination of the production designers. But other than that, like this looks like something that, wouldn't run theatrically but it also wouldn't just air on sci-fi i kind of enjoyed the spirit halloween aesthetic of the whole movie it it seemed like there was no coherence between any element of the production design 
but you just kind of have like it's like people went to the Halloween store and they're like, all right, well, we need like a futuristic mad scientist villain. Okay, well, you know, what if he has like white eyes? Okay, that's cool. And that you know, this guy's wearing the Ozzy Osbourne outfit. Oh yeah, Chris and Patrick, uh, let's talk about that. So when the when the gang comes in, we got this motley crew. It kind of reminded me of the the Iggy. Iggy Pop song Nightclubbing, where he's talking about Dracula and his crew and describing these various weird figures. We got a guy who literally looks like an extra from what we do in the shadows. We got a cowboy. We've got somebody who looks a little bit like Susie Sue. We got Ozzy Osbourne. We've got a guy with a fucking bionic arm. It's like Masters of the Universe or something. Like, I, I, and, and why I, not? It's great. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Like, I want action figures of all of these people, please. Like, yes. <laughs> but it's so fucking jarring, and it doesn't make any sense. I mean, I guess, so, uh, I don't know if I understood this correctly, but it seems like these people are part of a a movement that is all about sort of, like, bionic attachments. And yes. Ozzy Osbourne, which, uh, who... That's how I'm going to call him for the rest of this episode. It, Ozzy Osbourne has a bionic. So he has deliberate. a bionic middle finger as well. It's so fucking strange, and yet I never really got a sense of like, what is this movement? Why does it ex- exist? What is the scope of it? But it's it seems it seems like the movie wants you to think it's very important. Oh no! I was just like, you know what? It's it's fine. It's it's superficial. It's a it's a sci-fi futuristic gang. We're just gonna make them look vaguely like a futuristic gang, and they're gonna have bionic implants that are vague. Whatever. Make them look like the futuristic gang in every other fucking sci-fi movie that has a futuristic gang. I've never seen a gang in a sci-fi movie that looked as motley and bizarre and diverse as this one and i kind of i was on board for it i was like all right like we see them within the first 15 20 minutes and i was like all right shit's about to get really weird and it doesn't i mean so there's like a completely bizarre romance in this yeah that's but lightly. Well, that's sparked by a weird line about small penises. I don't know. That's a thing I have to say about this movie. That's a fucked up scene. The interesting contrast between all these gang characters is that our heroes are like just it's like a cop. It's like a, a stock character from any other movie. Like guy who wears a leather jacket and he's a cop and he's rough it's around. Jai the Courtney. Yeah, it's a, it could have been Jai Courtney or is it Jay Courtney? Oh, you know, so so he and uh, Daria, the the female lead, are basically just like they could have walked on or off any episode of like SVU or something, but they're just in this world which is otherwise so bizarre. <laughs> it does like the dialogue in this too is like I, uh, Patrick and I were texting about this, and and he rightfully gave me some kind of flack when I said that the dialogue is snappy like in the original film um i didn't mean that to be to to say that the dialogue is good but it does feel like it does feel like a tv cop show and like written by somebody who's been doing that for like 30 years and knows how to hook the audience in and like upend their expectations there is like kind of a fun snappy back and forth between these two characters i guess yeah i I, yeah i just i still don't know if i can describe it as that 
I mean, I understand that there's like the approximation of that. There's somebody trying to do that, but it feels more to me like somebody who's been watching 30 years of cop shows and trying to emulate them more than somebody who's been actually writing them and is like skilled at this. Oh, it's, it's okay. I'll clarify. It's not good, but I admired the attempt because I didn't expect it in a movie like this i mean the romance is kicked off by this and you know the writer like just thought this was fucking brilliant and you know i mean the writer's a man right oh i mean yeah and you know the writer thought that he was like really (laughs) clever and like a really cool like good guy when he wrote this line but you know the the, daria is talking about how you know i don't know she can beat people up she has fucking martial arts skills because of course she does um and <laughs> yeah it's and and she's talking about how that's intimidated guys in the past and i don't know i'm fucking paraphrasing at this point but i think our i think jai courtney says something along the lines of like oh they must have all had small penises or something like that and then she just like grabs him and they start making out it's just it's so stupid <sighs> This, okay, yeah. I have a line I wrote down that I really loved, and I honestly, I mean, for the life of me, cannot remember who said it, but <laughs> it was, I'm going to take the rest of the day off. I'm going to treat myself to a beautiful plaything, and the car ain't bad either. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, there's, yeah. So much, there's so many, like, zingers like that that are, like, I mean, to call it a zinger is is uh, charitable. I'll keep using well, that Well, it's word. a zinger but in the sense trying. that the... The writer thought it was a zinger. Like, he yes. was so proud of himself when he wrote these things. And it's just like, ugh, really? Yes, okay, let me break this down, though, very briefly. That is why I appreciated that kind of dialogue in this movie, because that is exactly the kind of dialogue we had in the original car that I found so entertaining and out of touch. Like, I guess that's why I had a different experience with it than you did, Patrick, because I was like, oh, this is this is at least as far as the dialogue and character interactions go, this is totally equivalent to that completely misguided movie that spawned the sequel. And I just, I delighted in it. So I disagree with that actually, because like the original card to me, I I can't think of an example of these like faux clever one-liners. Like that's not really part of the original car to me. The, the original car is like way more weirdly naturalistic. Like when I think of the dialogue in the original car, I think of sort of the weird exchanges that James Brolin has with his girlfriend, where it actually feels oddly like just the sort of stupid way that people talk to each other in real life. It doesn't have that weird, like snappy, you know, SVU NCIS vibe to it, where you just feel the writer trying to be as clever as possible. Well, this is where you've caught me unarmed because I I agree with you about those scenes, but I do remember feeling very deeply that like there's a lot of really silly dialogue, especially with the police officers in that film, that felt like it came from like a 40s Western or something. Oh, for sure. There's... There's definitely silly dialogue in the car, but I mean, I th- I think the the best comparison to me is you know that scene where the the school teacher girlfriend is taunting the car from the graveyard, and it's it's so dumb. Like all the ways she taunts it are dumb, but also they're dumb in the way that. <laughs> 
this statement is about to be so ridiculous. They're dumb in the way that if you were taunting a sentient car in real life, you would probably say similar things to what she says in the movie. Like none of it has a sort of sense of cleverness to it. And I can just imagine the writer of the car road to revenge trying to come up with like some real clever, like zippy punchy pissy bitchy one-liners that the character would be delivering to the car to me like the writing styles of the two movies cannot be more different yeah, well the I stuff think- okay we when we talk about people interacting with the car it's lazy as fuck because they just keep calling the car a motherfucker a bitch an asshole <laughs> like- <laughs> I, I think i agree with uh patrick on this i'm on team patrick on this argument uh but both movies have you know that great moment and the great line where somebody just with the weight of the world in their eyes says <laughs> i don't think there was anyone driving that car yes <laughs> i know and like okay this is obviously an absurd film on so many levels, but every actor in this movie is giving it their all. And I really appreciated their performances, especially that scene in particular. Like that's a line that you expect to come at some point. And uh, I don't know, like I, it didn't have an emotional impact on me because it's a fucking car sequel, but I really appreciated that the actors took it so seriously and tried to deliver that scene naturally. Well, and we should note, because we've alluded to this moment a couple of times, but I, I think it's as good a moment as any to bring this up, that that moment when somebody finally realizes that the car is unmanned comes right after a truly spectacular moment and perhaps maybe the only moment in this movie that I really enjoyed, which is during this huge chase scene when the car like backs up, reverses down this country road, and then drives at this horde of people who are shooting at it and have been chasing it in their cars. And just inexplicably, with with no ramp, there's nothing. The car like basically just jumps. It You can only say it jumps, flips, and spins across this horde of people who are trying to stop no, it. No, it doesn't jump. It flies. The car actually... It decapitates at least two gangsters. Yes. Yes. (laughs) It's an amazing moment. This movie gave me the gore that I was hoping for in the first car. Oh my god, there's a scene where Ozzy Osbourne, his head gets popped, and I'm convinced that the sound they used, because it was so unceremonious, I'm convinced that they actually used the sound of a grape popping. Oh, his yeah. head exploded. The, the sound in this movie was terrible. We've got our, our main uh, uh, female lead carrying around like a 44 Magnum revolver, and it's like it, it, it's just like popping like a like it doesn't have the, the it's the wrong sound for the gun. You know what I mean? Did that bother anybody else, or do I just play too many? No, video it bothered games? me too. And also, the, the gun, the gun shots against the car also looked really phony like they almost look like emojis I, i've never fired a 44 magnum revolver but i don't care even if it sounds like shit in real life when you're making a movie you need to make sure it sounds like dirty harry if you're going to use that gun i have no idea what you're talking about i could not tell you what a 44 magnum looks like or sounds like dirty harry gun i mean i know dirty harry carries a magnum but i don't know what that looks like or what it even means i know what it does and there's a scene where there's <laughs> The, the mad scientist character employs a troop of, like, Mad Max extras to chase down the car, and they all start firing guns into the air for literally a minute, almost <laughs> a full minute, and there was 
no impact on me whatsoever. I never felt like these were real guns that were actually firing. It just felt like, all right, it's a low budget movie. Let's show people like we, we have to fill 90 minutes. Let's show a full minute of people firing guns in the air. And that'll be exciting to the audience. And it's not, I actually really like that energy because the whole movie has that energy. You can tell they had a lot of fun making this movie. They weren't trying to make Oscar bait. Uh, they knew what they were doing. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't say anybody had fun making this. Like, this is a pretty dour movie. I mean, it's got that Zack Snyder gray filter over everything. All the actors are taking it no, you can't far too seriously. Who, you, you can't have a character who's just so deliberately meant to evoke Ozzy Osbourne and tell me that they were taking it seriously. I mean, okay, I don't know if they took it seriously, but I don't know if... I didn't get the vibe that this was a fun movie to make. <laughs> like it seemed oh, no. pretty, I would, I would pretty make grim a movie to me. with these guys any day. Oh, Ozzy Osbourne and the and the vampire and the the punk rock chick and the cowboy. You'd you'd hire those people? Absolutely. Okay, yeah, I would be on I, that set. I would be delivering coffee. I I also didn't get a sense of like fun or love from this movie. Yeah, it's pretty it's pretty by the numbers. It's pretty straightforward. I mean it. I mean, straightforward is a bit of a stretch because I didn't really, like Patrick pointed to earlier, like I didn't really understand what the purpose of the MacGuffin was from the beginning. And I didn't feel any sense of like mystery about who the car, (laughs) this is a crazy thing to say, but I didn't feel any sense of mystery about who the car was. Like we know from the beginning and it just seems absurd that this insane uh, plot against the car continues over the course of this movie. Like I, I, but, this movie needed a release valve. It needed a sense of humor. You know, the car is a little bit more of a villain in this movie for me than in the first one. Even though it's kind of an anti-hero because it's killing gangsters, uh, it's on the road to revenge. Like the first car is just evil incarnate, but it's not a hundred percent evil. You know, it had the chance to kill uh, Josh Brolin and it didn't. Josh Brolin, James, James Brolin. <laughs> Well, ch- it, it didn't, but it wanted to. Like, the car was pure evil. And it this movie, it could have run his ass in this, over in that showdown, and it didn't do it. So it's like, its motives were a little mysterious in the first car. You're like, is this okay. a good car or a bad car? This car, I know it's haunted. I know who it's haunted by. I know I don't like the person that it's haunted by. I know he's not a good guy. I know he's a psychopath. Sure. I know he has ill intent for our heroine. So I was a little bit more nervous about the car. I, okay, in this movie, I was nervous about the car in like when his ex, who he was fucking terrible to um, in the early scenes where we saw them dining together, um, you know, he he <laughs> he basically says, I'm not going to in, in a sense, he says, I'm not going to stop chasing you because I know you're going to be right for me eventually, which is horrifying. It's not played in a horrifying way, but it's unacceptable human behavior. But later in the film, I was so confused and also felt, you know, as much suspense as I could feel in a terrible movie like this when I didn't know if the car was going to run her down too. Yep. Oh, I mean, the car is absolutely a villain. This DA is a piece of shit. Like, his political policies are terrible. He's terrible to literally everyone we see him interact with as a human being. He treats Daria awfully. And yet, I mean, yes, this is one of my problems, is that at some point, you're almost supposed to start rooting for him because this gang has turned against him. And I guess we're supposed to hate the gang more than him. 
maybe i mean i don't don't know it's unclear definitely there are definitely moments where i feel like you're supposed to be rooting for the car and it almost becomes a weird class thing because the da is of course you know upper class ruling class like he's got the fucking suits he's in charge of shit but i think you're supposed to dislike the gang more because they're fucking grubby like gutter people or yeah i really like that take i think politically i'm on the side of the gangsters what the hell do they do wrong they're they're running a a health the they a free health care uh provider in the alleys (laughs) the da was also kind of in league with these gangsters it turns out he's running a strip club he's doing all this like all these shady side deals on the data market and like with the with these gangsters hey guys um I, this is on IMDb, so it's it's reliable but not guaranteed information. But uh, where would you guess this movie was shot? Not in America. You're right. That's my guess. <laughs> I can't go any more specific. IMDb says this movie was shot in Bulgaria. Oh, wow! That makes sense. It's probably really cheap there. Yeah. All right. Uh, okay. I we we've bitched about this movie enough. Um, I think we should probably review it because there are some significant spoilers that we need to talk about yes of course you guys feel the same way absolutely yes please go all right uh patrick since you went last last time would you view this cue this or screw this i know you viewed it already but recommending it to listeners where do you stand i would screw this unless you have a deep and abiding fascination with the original car and are fascinated to see where it goes next yeah man this is this movie's kind of a drag for me as you probably have picked up on at this point uh chris i will disagree in that i think if you have any love for the car you should not watch this movie i think my i think having seen the original car only detracted from my enjoyment of this movie uh i'll give it a cue it though uh i think it is just a stupid entertaining romp Put it in your queue. Watch it late at night if you have a friend over and you're drinking beer and it's too early to go home or go to bed, but too late to really do anything else. Uh, watch the car road to revenge. It'll it'll stimulate you a little bit. There's some there's some scenes oh, it'll that stimulate you. There are some scenes that it'll titillate uh, you. You know. You just if you just want to see some people in ridiculous costumes get hit by a car before bed, this is the movie for you. Steven, I'm really conflicted on this and by which I mean like I'm on the fence between a cue it and a screw it. I think I'm going to give it I mean a cue it is a cue it, but if my words have any weight, I will give this a very low cue it. I agree with Chris. Like this, this could be a fun movie to watch with friends. I personally had a minor blast with it. Um, there's there's some ridiculous wow. shit, but but kind of like the original car. I feel like a five minute supercut would give you everything you need from this movie. Oh yeah, but it, it's just completely wild. I mean, I I texted you or sent you guys an image. Uh, earlier or last night from this film that just kind of summed up the production design. I mean, there's, there's a scene in this where we have the DA is sitting back in his leather chair. He's got a physical landline phone against his ear. He's got this minority report technology in front of him with all the apps and all of his, you know, social interfaces on the internet, a 50s style whiskey decanter. And this like kind of kinky, 
like leather backing on the door behind him. And like this movie is just like, it's swinging. It's trying to go for that, like blade runner, Brazil, like future meets the present sort of energy. And I frankly found that shit hilarious. (laughs) Like I, I, I was so enthralled with just the production design of this movie and how they were just trying to do so much with so little, with no clear intent it, as a B movie, though, it's not as fun as the original by a long stretch. I mean, there there are some, uh, to borrow Patrick's term, uh, it drags more frequently than it speeds. So I'll, I will give it a very low cue it. Okay, can we please go to the spoiler mechanic shop? All right, we'll be back in a minute. Alright folks, we're down in the spoiler room. We're gonna spoil everything about the car. We got Road Patrick up on a jack. What? what? We said we got Patrick up on a jack down here. I I trying, you know, I was trying to say we're, we're like trying a to garage. Fi- trying to fix him up. We're trying to fix him up. We're trying to get him <laughs> looking looking buff, looking built. I fucking uh, need it. Getting back into shape. I need it. Yeah, I need it too. I fucking need it too, man. Eating too much cheese lately. My body right. is 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 forfeit right now. My body is a cage. Yeah. <laughs> so what the wow. hell? It's, it's, it's an ugly, grimy cage, too. So does the car um, get its revenge or what? I would say it does. I would say the car gets its revenge. I mean, the real, you know, the reason we took this down to the spoiler room and not the first movie is because, as we said before, this movie seems to bear almost no resemblance aside from some, some beats uh, in screenwriting terms to the original, but... God damn, does it bring us home because the car gets fucking destroyed. The the gang of course catches up with it. They they trick it into driving into a fucking hole. They shoot the shit out of it. It burns to hell. And then an unlikely figure pops up at the junkyard to to take care of this the the remains of the car. It's Ronnie Cox from the original car and he recognizes this car. I don't understand the continuity cuz I think he was a cop in the first one and now he's managing a junkyard, but he's got a he's got a what he calls a donor, a car donor in his workshop and and he understands the power of this thing. He's going to put it back together and give it its original power. It's the car guys it's the car from the car that he's got in his workshop OG just car. sitting there under a under a dust coat and uh he puts it back together and then it fucking tries to kill him and which I think is the most baffling him. part about that I, I unclear like it was well, a little bit his, like his guts were hanging out when the car was done with him no i just saw him fall over no I didn't see his, his guts hanging his out. guts his guts did come out but it was a little ambiguous. It was almost a throwback to how people were dying in the original car, where you just kind of see the car's wheel go, and then he kind of, like, falls over the hood of the car. I mean, it prompts so many questions. Like, is this the same character from the original car, or is it just a brand-new character that happens to be played by Ronnie Cox in a 
nod to the original car. And uh, under any circumstances, no matter what the answer to that previous question, why does he happen to have the car in this warehouse? Why is the car completely incapacitated? Why is he suddenly chosen to reanimate the car? Why, if he has some sort of knowledge of the original <laughs> car's powers, does he choose to reanimate <laughs> yes. it and bring it back to life and make it capable of killing him? It just... I mean, in some ways, it's kind of cool connective tissue. I almost actually welcomed it at this point in the movie because I had been so puzzled by, you know, what this movie had to do with the original car other than that other than that, there's a new car that kills people. But at this point, it's just uh, the connection is so tenuous that it's like, why are you even doing this to me? It, it makes even less sense now. It makes no sense. And can you imagine... As I'm, I'm sure many viewers will go into this film not realizing this is a sequel. Also, so those it's are my going final be... thoughts on the car road to revenge. Enjoy the rest of the episode. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye. Like, Bye. <laughs> Bye. Like I, I watched this thinking like I barely understand what the fuck is happening right now. I can't imagine if I'd never seen the original car and didn't recognize this actor or the George Barris car from the original like this movie would have just completely flatlined at that point for me. Oh wait, and we didn't we didn't even mention that. George Barris. You you told me this fun fact yesterday, Stephen, that the guy who designed the original car is the guy who designed the Batmobile from the I assume from the 1966 like the 60s Batman series. Yeah, he's a, he's an iconic designer and it's an iconic car. Um I feel like somebody really shitty and wealthy owns it now, but I can't place my name on it. I mean, yeah, Elon I Musk, read that maybe. it's in um, like a private collection. It's probably Eli um, Roth. Much like something, <laughs> much like another piece of film history that will soon be in my private collection. Oh my god. God, <laughs> stop teasing them. Stop like, teasing just them. Just fucking say. Can't it. talk about. Can't talk about yet. Uh The the car in this movie dies. It gets a second life. I mean, for what purpose? I don't really fucking know. The the connection of the first car is so bad. Let me share with you a review I read on IMDb from one M. Sean Cunningham. Who oh, says, I love user reviews on IMDb. He They're says, so from a filmmaker's standpoint, it was a complete film, but to call this a sequel to the original was a travesty. I'm sick and I despise what was created. They should have called this something totally different and never associate it with the original. I'm sick. Why did Ronnie sign on to this debacle? It had no heart, <laughs> especially no heart in the essence of the car. <laughs> Incredible. I love the passion. Yeah. I mean, did the original have a heart? I don't think so. So very interesting take from uh, what's his name again? M. Sean Con Cunningham. Listen, the original M did have a heart. I cared about those characters. Yeah, okay, that's fair. So the car comes back to life. Uh, it, <laughs> I mean, this is, it's hard to describe, but the car kidnaps our heroine. Yeah, there's uh, a bunch of shit somehow. in between that we don't need to get into where there's double crosses and people get kidnapped and they go see the gang and they get there's medical experiments and it's all just bullshit. But yeah. But the, like our heroine is being is like on a stretcher for reasons unknown. Well, that's what's she's... cool because there is kind of the big climax and then you kind of think it's over and it's kind of the falling action where where uh you know the the EMTs have arrived, our hero and our heroine are are sharing a little bit of a kiss or whatever and you think it's the end of the movie but no the car comes around the corner 
And and I I think it like just hits her like gurney so that she slides off into the car, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then she's Yeah, but in before the car. then, okay, this is a point I want to touch on very briefly. But the scene where they actually kill or think they killed the original car that comes back is like the laziest rendition of a Christine reenactment I have ever seen. Because we all know, like, the the end of Christine, which we've reviewed on the show, like, it's a forklift that finally kills Christine and just drives the fuck over her and kills her. Oh, in my this God, movie, that forklift. In this movie, we have a, they lure the car up to a forklift that has a bunch of dynamite and explosives on it, lift it up barely a foot off the ground. Yes. And it explodes. Like, I didn't understand how the car couldn't wiggle its way out of that. Like, this is a car that spontaneously took flight over like <laughs> 10 other fucking cars and yet it runs into a forklift like barely this forklift barely lifts it off the ground as steven said one foot and that's enough that's enough to immobilize it yeah so anyway the car kidnaps our heroine uh i mean it's uh, weird to it's weird to personify a car but i will refer to him as his i mean uh, the, his, the, 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 his, the titles of both these movies literally personify the car so yeah uh, yeah, but I mean, it's hard. It's strange to talk about, but the car takes his ex. <laughs> uh, and oh, yes, she, in the sense that it is the DA. Yes. Yeah, that is yeah, strange. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just, it's so strange. And this movie is not strange enough. And then, um, except and- for this finale, because the, she ends up leading the car to a quarry and dumping it into the abyss. But the most frustrating part of this is she's able to foil the car by taking out some piece of hardware. And I think as she's doing it, she implies that it might be like, yeah, the car's computer or something. Now, before there had been speculation, there was speculation before that the car was driving because he, it was like an AI program. It was self-driven. Not actually a ghost, but maybe the DA had uploaded himself into an AI. Um, which is way less fun than it just being a haunted car. For sure. So, but yeah, she's like, and that's never really explained, but she's digging for it. She's like, oh, where's the CPU? And she's able to disable the car by removing the CPU, which would work if it was an AI car, but not if it were just a haunted ghost car. And I, I thought that was a little late in the game to be doing that. I didn't need that. Uh, well, I guess they had, were all out of ideas on how else she could stop the ghost car from within. So Yeah, I was not on board with that. Also, it happened so quickly that I missed it the first time <laughs> because I was so distracted at this point in the film and had to revisit that last that last act. Yeah. Um, but yeah, she kills the fucking car by... I mean, it's weirdly reminiscent of the original where they lead the car into a quarry that is not filled with water. Maybe it was the same quarry. And blow it up. It could I have been. And that. global warming has just filled that quarry with immense amounts of water. Not global warming. Any any vacant quarry will eventually uh, fill with water. But then the my, I, I laughed. I was so satisfied because we finally you know cut to the bed of the quarry and we we see the car we know the car's gonna come (laughs) back to life and yet the headlights come back on underwater and i was like oh that's great that's great but man i want to see a whole movie not think that that, was great i want to see a whole movie about how that car is gonna get the fuck out of that quarry. it's gonna fly (laughs) out man you know what hot take i need absolutely no more car movies oh no we we need oh no we need more car movies Stick no. with the original. Like this is this is this movie is uh, this movie should not exist. 
So that's that's the damn car. I wish I could tell you what we're watching <laughs> next week, but that's going to have to be decided by you, the listener. Go to everyhorrormovie on Netflix.com slash auction, and you will be redirected. Uh, you will see all the rules and regulations, and, and I hope you open your pocketbooks and give a ton of money, not to us, but to our very worthy cause, the Movement for Black Lives. And we would love to watch whatever is on your mind absolutely like we we need a fucking break yeah (laughs) please please give us a break (laughs) yeah we're really looking forward to watching whatever you pick for us next time and uh supporting an extremely worthy cause in the meantime and until then for every horror movie on netflix i'm patrick i'm steven and i'm chris we'll see you next time